I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Patine podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. Sometimes it's a jarring, terrible event or chain of events in our lives that lead us toward a higher purpose. It was just so with paranormal investigator Maurice Gross. After the death of his daughter in a tragic accident, Gross joined the Society of Psychical Research in the UK and threw himself into investigating things paranormal. One of his first cases was one of the most famous and well-known hauntings, not only in England but also the world that of the Enfield Poltergeist in 1977. During that case, Gross and his partner from the SPR, psychical investigator Guy Lyon Playfair, made names for themselves investigating the strange goings-on at the Little Council House on Green Street in Enfield, North London. There, the Hodgson family, led by daughters Janet, 11, and Margaret, 13, claimed they were being tortured by a poltergeist. Gross later claimed that he and Playfair had recorded many hours of audio and video evidence of the poltergeist. They'd gathered the recordings while staying at the house for long periods of time over the months of their investigations. We'll learn more around this familiar and compelling case from you podcaster Paul Bestall, who hosts the podcast Mysteries and Monsters. Mysteries and Monsters is a weekly interview podcast where host Paul Bestall speaks with the best and brightest from all over the Fortean field, from authors to podcasters to researchers. But first, Morgan, who's been a frequent guest on Paul's show, digs further into the life and work of paranormal investigator Maurice Gross. Here's Morgan. Transition places can make you realize you are meant for more, to understand more, to be more, to know more. However, you may not have the ability or the pedigree to step into the new arena you're being called to. It might be that you just stepped into something you don't understand. You might not know how to dress for it or even have a reference for it, but it's happening anyways. These moments say, I'm here, but I look like my history and where I came from. I'm still bruised from what I went through to get here. But here we go. I'm ready anyways. Maurice Gross passed away in 2006 and left us a lesson in transition and position that has left an indelible mark on parapsychology and in the hearts of many who knew his story. Born in Hackney, London, the son of Russian and Jewish immigrants spent his childhood excelling in science he even went as far as to construct a crystal radio for himself at a young age and quickly fell in love with engineering and the arts. Gross joined the Territorial Army and during World War II, serving in the Royal Artillery in 1944, he married and soon after had three wonderful children. With his passion for the arts and creativity, Maurice was an inventor at heart and spent most of his days creating brand new gadgets and mechanical systems, which were incredibly successful. They sold all over the world under his company's name, Maurice Gross Displays Limited. 
quickly becoming a member of the Royal Institution and the Institute of Patentees and Inventors, he created complex vending machines, moving billboards, as well as the first automatic newspaper dispenser. Maurice's success was enduring, and his family continued to love and support his wild ideas and unique inventions. However, his world changed one day in 1976, and nothing would ever be the same for Maurice again. It was a tragedy that not only called him higher, but thrust him into a position of transition and discovery. One day in 1976, the call every parent fears the most came to Maurice's attention. His young daughter, Janet, was dead. She was killed in a motorcycle accident, her head injuries too severe to survive, and the inventor's life was forever changed. In pain and grief, Maurice's life was spun upside down and the successful engineer was forced to re-examine what he thought he knew. These periods in our lives have a funny way of also revealing broader things. Purposes and ideas and inspiration we could not see before, and for Maurice a strange series of events began to follow. In the following days, Maurice began to notice a string of bizarre coincidences. And after a time, he was forced to wonder if they were coincidences at all. He began to wonder if his daughter was really gone, and his notion of survival after death began to expand. All incidents were suggestive of the idea that Janet was reaching out to continue the relationship with her father and her father wasn't about to let go of that opportunity. In 1977, Maurice joined the Society of Psychical Research and shifted his attention from engineering to something much larger, the study of consciousness and the survival of our personalities after death. Little did he know that Janet's death and his new pursuit in understanding this expansion would position him to champion for another little girl named Janet, whom he had not yet met. Sometimes, transition calls us to change our course. We don't always get to choose when it happens. In fact, we rarely get to have a say at all. Suffering comes when we don't shift our gears and move with the tides that are flowing. What we resist persists, and when we hold ourselves back from that flowing current, we will be more miserable than what we already think we are. It takes courage to change course and move in the direction of our instinct where our experiences take us especially if it is way outside our comfort zone, which it often is. You don't have to forget where you came from, but you have to be willing not to stay there. After a very short time at the SPR, Maurice noticed a case in the Daily Mirror newspaper that surprised him. A young family claiming they were being attacked by an unseen presence and were desperate for help. In Enfield, a suburb north of London, the paper stated that an unusual collection of strange phenomena was beginning to be documented and that the family was appealing to the SPR for an investigation. And very soon after, Gross was officially contacted. Maurice jumped at the opportunity and prepared to meet the 47-year-old single mother, Peggy, and her four children, having no concept of what he would find apart from what had been reported. Doors opening and closing, furniture, other household objects were moving around on their own, along with a plethora of other strange occurrences were all listed as observed at this small row house. 
Peggy was terrified for both herself and her four young children who were being ostracized in the community and amongst their peers for being the weird kids with the haunted house. Although the article in the Daily Mirror had attracted help, it also brought severe criticism. The low-income family was being accused at large of using the story as a way to seek fame and attention and maybe even a fat paycheck. Despite over a few hundred affidavits from police officers, neighbors, family, and friends, the public still saw Peggy and her family, specifically her oldest daughter, Janet, as attention-seeking liars. Peggy Hodgson and her family were also thrust into transition. She was considered by her close neighbors and friends to be a conscientious person who loved her kids and worked hard to support them and make ends meet. The people who knew her well indicated she was a kind woman who had come by hard times as a newly single mother in an expensive economy. Her children were completely unique in personality. While Margaret, 13, was serious and reserved, Janet, 12, was extroverted and playful. John, who was 11, was rarely home as he was boarded at a school elsewhere, and despite having a severe speech defect, Billy, 7, was a typical little boy. However, in this small three-bedroom, council-owned, semi-detached house, divorcee Peggy and her four children, Margaret, Janet, John, and Billy, were living a nightmare. Struggling financially and dealing with the betrayal of her husband and their father, Janet was secretly delving into the spiritual, and the Hodgsons inadvertently attracted the attention of a very unwelcome guest. On August 31st, 1977, Janet and John heard shuffling in their bedroom. When Peggy entered, a strange knocking sound began, and within moments, a chest of drawers moved 18 inches across the room without any physical contact. Calling on their neighbors, the couple came over to investigate and also found no apparent cause for the knocking, let alone the movement of a full chest of drawers. And so, terrified, the police were called. WPC, Heaps, and PC Hyams arrived at the house around 1 a.m. Heaps witnessed a chair move two to three feet across the living room floor and knocking was now following the officers and the two neighbors around the house as if it had a conscious idea as to its surroundings and what was in them. Heaps testified to the investigators as follows. On Thursday, September 1st, 1977, at approximately 1 a.m., I was on duty in my capacity as a policewoman when I received a radio message to 284 Wood Street, Enfield. I went to this address where I found a number of people standing in the living room. I was told by the occupier of this house that strange things had been happening during the last few nights and that they believed the house was haunted. Myself and another PC entered the living room of the house and the occupier switched off the lights. Almost immediately, I heard the sound of knocking on a wall that backs onto the next-door neighbor's house. There were four distinct taps on the wall and then silence. About two minutes later, I heard more tapping, but this time, it was coming from a different wall. Again, it was a distinctive peal of four taps. The PC and the neighbors checked the walls, attic, and pipes, but could find nothing to explain the knockings. The PC and the neighbors all went into the kitchen to check the refrigerator pipes, leaving the family and myself in the living room. The lights in the living room were switched off again, and within a few minutes, the eldest son pointed to a chair which was standing next to the sofa. 
I looked at the chair and noticed that it was wobbling slightly from side to side. Then I saw the chair slide across the floor towards the kitchen wall. It moved approximately three to four feet and then came to rest. At no time did it appear to leave the floor. I checked the chair but could find nothing to explain how it had moved. The lights were switched back on. Nothing else happened that night, although we have later reports of disturbances at this address. In the days to come, the activity escalated. Toys flew around the house of their own volition, objects were thrown, and furniture was moved on its own. Police, clergymen, and other officials were all called in to help and all witnessed the anomalies, yet the phenomenon was undeterred by the presence of guests. On September 4th, Peggy's neighbors called the Daily Mirror, hoping the story would land in the lap of assistance for their dear friends, and thankfully, it caught the attention of two reporters who came to document the events. Reporter Douglas Bentz and photographer Graham Morris visited the house, and Morris was promptly hit in the head so hard with a flying Lego block that it left a large bruise, which lasted for days. The paper reached out to the Society of Psychical Research, who inevitably contacted Maurice. Senior reporter George Fallows reported as such. Because of the emotional atmosphere at the house and in the neighborhood, ranging from hysteria through terror to excitement and tension, it has been difficult to record satisfactory data. Nevertheless, I am satisfied the overall impression of our investigation is reasonably accurate. To the best of our ability, we have eliminated the possibility of total trickery, although we have been able to simulate most of the phenomena. In my opinion, this faking could only be done by an expert. Transitional moments have an interesting way of connecting people who otherwise may never have met. There is a power in the paranormal and in the energy that creates worlds that calls us to new places and makes us pack our bags for destinations we never knew were on our itinerary, both emotionally and physically. Transition and travel can happen between non-physical and physical. It can happen through destinations, and it can happen through ideas and paradigms. Either way, transitions can cause you to rendezvous with people you never knew existed, and sometimes non-physical energies you never thought possible. Maurice visited the Hodgson house on September 5th, bringing some calm to the terrified household and giving them guidelines to write down any incident that continued to happen. On September 8th, Gross was welcomed to the house by a large crash and at that moment decided to take on the case for himself. Excited, he may be getting a glimpse into the afterlife. Maurice's excitement quickly turned to concern. The incidents at the Hodgson's home increased he began to realize he may indeed be in over his head as just one man and one set of eyes. Marbles that flew through the air and landed on the floor without rolling, as if they were weighted with lead, drawers and doors that opened of their own accord, doors swinging open violently and stationary objects jumped and rattled. Maurice knew help was needed to document everything he was witnessing and called on Guy Playfair from the SPR to assist. Author and investigator Playfair responded to Gross's plea and arrived on September 12th, along with Rosalind Morris from BBC Radio 4, The World This Weekend. It was then that this case became more than what any of the men had bargained for. Physical aggression began and the presence in the house turned violent. Janet was picked up and moved around the room. Margaret was attacked and held down by an unknown force. Fires broke out and then extinguished leaving no sign of anything burnt. 
excrement was found around the home in inappropriate places. Apparitions appeared and disappeared. The iron gate in the front of the fireplace was deliberately wrenched from the wall. And then, in the most terrifying display they documented, the investigators began hearing a disembodied voice around poor Janet. What began as a gruff barking and growling began to form words, and the more attention and conversation it was given, the voice took shape until it could not only form words, but entire sentences. Intelligent, witty, and verbally abusive, the voice behind the daily paranormal phenomenon appeared, and it even called itself a name, Bill. Inhuman entities have a behavior that is common among them that Steph and I labeled as the wolf, after the term wolf in sheep's clothing. It typically is a strategically designed entity, often created with bits and pieces of old facts from the family or the home itself. It is not real, but rather a bluff created to imitate the likeness of a living person, gaining the trust and confidence of the investigators. The easiest way to tell if a case involves something like this is to look at the behavior of the intelligence itself. Old men named Bill don't usually go around ripping iron gates from fireplaces, starting mysterious fires, throwing little girls, or for that matter, barking and growling at researchers and police. In this case, the entity claimed its name was Bill Wilkins, a man who had indeed previously lived in the home, and went on to say, out loud with no audio equipment needed, that it had died in a chair from a hemorrhage in the living room. The seemingly coherent story, however, would change rampantly as it does with most cases of negative entities like this, and it went on to say it also had 68 dogs that would bite the head off researchers if they tried to make it go away. Nonsensical rantings that sounded similar to toddlers making up a threat to ward off their parents. Worried that Janet may be faking the voice, Maurice devised a plan to ensure she wasn't trying anything sneaky. He taped her mouth shut with duct tape and continued the interview with the entity. The voice continued to be heard regardless, as was the case on future occasions when Janet's mouth was also filled with water. When the sessions were over, she would spit the water back into the glass, disproving any sort of trickery or ventriloquism. Hours of voice recordings were made as the entity that called itself Bill ranted, stole objects, cussed them out, and humored their questions in between growls and animal-like barks all while aggressively attacking Janet in spontaneous bursts of psychokinetic energy. As the family suffered, public opinion was riled. Now that the press had caught on to the case, the plea for help, which had been initiated in good faith, had now become a circus, and Janet was suffering. Emotionally beaten down and publicly humiliated as a fraud and a liar, her isolation was ever looming. Unable to go to school any longer, Janet was a recluse at home, under the direction and orders of the abusive personality, Bill. Part of the transition is coming under fire. Instinct has movement. Instinct has rhythm. And when you are in a period of transition, you will come under fire. That could be from people, situations, circumstances, or it can be from your own story about the situation. Regardless, the fire is designed to keep you from going back to the place the universe is trying to move you from. Maurice was under fire, and in his case, he was under fire from the media, a non-physical entity that was far beyond his pay grade, and his new role as Janet's champion. Sometimes, opportunities and our purpose come in the guise of pain. It's hard to recognize well-being in a storm, but sometimes that's where it needs to come from in order for us to get where we need to be. 
Maurice was seeking proof of life after death, and he found himself so far outside his comfort zone, standing for a little girl against quite a few monsters in various forms, and he would in no way have been in that position to respond to that call for help had his deceased daughter not inspired him to seek connection. In my 20 years of paranormal research and having had many relationships transitioned by the death experience, I have realized that sometimes the purpose or the lesson appears agreed upon before you get here to this physical planet. Janet and Maurice were under fire. Media coverage sensationalized the events in newspapers with headlines such as terror for family and spook riddle, ghost hunters clash over mystery of spook or spoof kids, and Phantom Fred is a force to fear, accompanied by a ghostly image of Guy Playfair. In an attempt to debunk the situation entirely, Melvin Harris, notorious for his skepticism, analyzed the photographs of Janet levitating in Guy's eventual book about the case, This House is Haunted, and claimed they were clearly hoaxed by girls who were just being pranksters and demonstrated no paranormal events at all. In reply, Playfair defended the photographs. On the curtain-twisting sequence, Harris suggests that the curtain has simply been hit by the bedclothes and knocked off the window ledge. He does not explain how the curtain then moves into the room, as it can be plainly seen to do in the first picture, instead of towards the window, as one might expect. Nor does he explain how it moves to the right, the opposite direction to that of the bedclothes, and then twists into a tight spiral. In the pillow sequence, he does not explain how the top pillow doubles in mid-air and changes direction, which it clearly does. Had both pillows been thrown with one hand by Rose, they would presumably have followed the same trajectory and landed together, which they do not. Such movements, he says, easily correspond with those to be found in commonplace everyday events. Not in the world I live in. Despite the attacks, Maurice stood unwavering at young Janet's side like a father to his own daughter. At age 45, Janet recounted her fear at the time in an interview. She stated, I knew when the voices were happening, of course. It felt like something was behind me all the time. They did all sorts of tests, filling my mouth with water and so on, but the voices still came out. The levitation was scary because you didn't know where you were going to land. I remember a curtain being wound around my neck. I was screaming. I thought I was going to die. Maurice's love and loyalty kept him at Janet's side throughout the abuse from Bill, and once she left the home, the event seemed to dissipate, although her mother, Peggy, who remained there until her death, was adamant the entity was still residing in their home. Maurice spent the rest of his life defending young Janet. Committed and certain about their research, he stepped back into the role of Janet's champion, a role that had been previously cut short with the death of his young daughter. Gross wrote articles, spoke at conferences, and made numerous television appearances to stand center stage for the bullied and ostracized Janet Hodgson. In 1995, he took part in the popular TV show Strange But True with presenter Michael Aspel. Two years after that, a verbal assault came from a psychologist, Nicholas Humphreys, in Channel 4's Is There Anybody There? and he immediately appeared in its Right to Reply TV program to give his version of events and defend the SPR. Nothing just happens. Everyone has been given something to present. We didn't come here to be complacent, and often when we think it's over, it's not. Many times we are simply taking score too soon, and when we do, we get stuck in the transition period because we are so concerned with looking in our rearview mirrors. 
don't close the book in the middle of the novel when you hit a bad chapter, how often is the conclusion of the book found halfway through reading? Nothing we go through is wasted. The universe has a way of utilizing our experiences, even the negative ones, for something greater than we may or may not understand in the moment. This is the essence of instinct and faith, and this is where we draw on the most. When we get repositioned, sometimes it's because we choose to, and other times we are repositioned because of circumstances. In those cases, it is imperative that we find our sea legs in both faith and instinct, whatever that looks like for you. There is no wrong or right way to do it. These things look different for everyone, no matter your background, culture, religion, if you have one, or your history. But a repositioning into the next level of who we are is always on the way. It is part of the journey, no matter what we do, and connecting back with that instinct and that center will turn into the long vision that will get you through. So today on Supernatural Circumstances, this is kind of a switch around for <laughs> for us because our guest, I'm usually on your show, Paul, on Mysteries and Monsters. And <laughs> so it's kind of a switch around, which is really fun. And I'm so glad that you guys, that you're, that you could be here today because Mike and I have always, we've talked about this case a number of times. Mm-hmm. Paul, you and I have talked about this case a number of times. Um, but first of all, welcome. And, um, I, you know, I think the, the audience would really love to hear a little bit about mysteries and monsters, first of all, and how you got going, because we were just talking here, uh, you know, off the recording about how one of the most, I think, reputable figures in the, the Enfield haunting, um, Guy Playfair was your first interview. So how did mysteries and monsters get going for you? Yeah. So I've always had a deep fascination with the paranormal as, as we've spoken when you've been a, uh, a very kind and thoughtful guest on my show three times so far, Morgan, and I'm sure it'll be more to add to that oh, down the line. <laughs> um, so obviously my, my grandmother was a, a, a psychic medium, witch and whatever. We grew up in a haunted house, which was a converted vicarage that, that looked out across into the local church. So we had a graveyard. 20 yards from our front door. Um, and, and so I'd always had a deep interest in the paranormal. And then we left our house. And then my auntie, who ran pubs in the northwest of England, ended up having a couple of pubs that were also haunted by poltergeists. Ironically, one of them was called Fred, because that's what we like to call our poltergeists here in the UK a lot, it seems. <laughs> um, and so I've always had a, a real interest in it. And then obviously, as I, as I grew older, between sort of my late teens, 20s and, and early 30s I kind of didn't really indulge myself as much as I did as a child when I was reading ghost books and and just devouring anything in regards to anything strange and weird and then about 10 years ago I thought I, I was kind of listless in my life and not really happy with my professional outlooks and and I was just the, the whole daily grind was getting me down so I, I decided I'd sort of reinvigorate my love of the paranormal and that was where the germ of Mysteries and Monsters began, despite the fact that it, it was kind of a non-starter. So I, I'd done some writing in, in regards to working for an American site, doing articles in regards to British football or soccer, as they call it in North America. And, um, and that had done quite well. And I'd 
built a decent reputation up. So I thought I would move into my first love, which was all things weird. And I took the plunge and sort of reached out to, to Guy Lyon Playfair because I was obsessed with the Enfield Poltergeist case amongst a, a lot of Guy Lyon Playfair's work. And so he very kindly just rang me up <laughs> out of wow. the blue and said, you've sent me this, this email, which I'd got through his publishers at the time, which I believe was White Crow Publishing. Um, and we had a chat. I think he was kind of sizing me up because obviously with everything that had gone on with Enfield, he'd certainly developed a, uh, a very low tolerance yeah. for, uh, for certain aspects of, of the world of journalism, shall we say. And, um, and we had a really nice chat. And then he said, right, just send me a load of questions over and we'll, we'll do it. And he sent them all back to me. And I began the process of building the website and everything like that. And unfortunately, my, uh, my health took a turn for the worst and everything went on the back burner for, for four years. And then my brother basically bullied me <laughs> <laughs> and said, uh, do you not think you should really be doing a podcast? Because, you, you know, you know a lot. You've got a lot of books. You've been interested in these things. We've lived in a haunted house. We know people that have had ghosts. You've been to some of the most famous locations in the UK. Mm -hmm. And so I just basically bought a, bought a microphone and let it sit on a shelf for six months and then eventually plucked up the courage after about three weeks of uh, building myself up to, to, to start recording interviews. And that was March 2019. And uh, here we are three and a half years later. That's great. That that really sounds like my journey into podcasting as well. <laughs> Isn't that phenomenal? Yeah. Like I, I had a whole studio set up in our spare bedroom and it just sat there for a couple of years mocking me every time. <laughs> every time I went to the washroom, it was like, you need to use me. You've spent all this money. <laughs> yeah. I, I, Amazing. I think the, the biggest downside to it all as well was that I, I'd kind of reached out and, and sort of dived in with with some of my favorite authors at the time so my first official interview for the show was with lyle blackburn and we did it and it was great and he was really kind at the end of it and i sat down and i checked the recording and it had only recorded me oh no oh gosh and i sent him an email and he was wonderfully pleasant and he said not a problem i've done shows like this before We'll do it again in about four or five weeks when I feel fresh again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, fair enough. And uh, yeah, it was a very harsh introduction to the world of, of live recording. Mm -hmm. It's not happened since. <laughs> it, it happens though, you know, I mean, it, it especially with the, the level of audio and specifications and equipment nowadays that, I mean, Mike and I'll, I literally always have two or three copies yeah. going at one time. Because backups of, of backups, because we, we definitely don't want to have to do that, you know, ask someone to, oh. to repeat themselves. <laughs> but it, it's, you know, it's so interesting that, I mean, you have got, uh, I, I think, a, a piece of, of history with, mm. with what you were able to do starting Mysteries and Monsters. I mean, you, you were really documenting some phenomenal people with some um, incredible stories like people, such as Guy Playfair and whatnot. Now with the, with the Enfield haunting, because I mean, that was, I, I think his most famous work at least. Yes. Um, it really was. And, you know, it really, it stands out, I think, among so many cases because it is, is so unique and terrifying at, at the same time. When did you first start taking interest in it as if it would be hard? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
well, the newspaper that covered it over here within a, a week of it starting was was the called the Daily Mirror, which is still running to this day. Right. Mm-hmm. And and it was the paper that my family got. So I heard about it within a week of it starting because it was in our daily paper. So I was reading about it as it was happening, and the Daily Mirror were there for for quite a bit at the beginning before. Guy Lyon Playfair and Maurice Gross went in to sort of become living investigators in the case. So it, it was front page headlines here in the UK within a week, I think at the beginning of September 1977. I think it started August the 30th, August the 31st. There's always a bit of disagreement about, did it start before midnight that day or just after it? So within a week, they'd ended up contacting the paper, the family, Peggy, the mum, um, because they had no idea what was going on. The police couldn't help them. Yeah. That whole situation, which was, I mean, mean, that in and of itself was so unnerving. I mean, we're talking about the 1970s, this stuff, you know, you can't, you didn't turn on your television to see paranormal programming. There was really not a lot of accessible information outside of things like the SPR, but for the, for the layman that that wasn't there for them, you know? So I, I can't even imagine what, what was, going on in in their heads at that time and and guy was one of those people i think that you know that really stepped up for this family and and he fought to defend their findings alongside maurice didn't he Mm -hmm. yeah very much so and it's it's very interesting like you say because at that period of time not there weren't many cases obviously as as mike mentioned before we we started our, our conversation proper it had been a long time since Harry Price had passed away, I think, you know, 30 odd years. Yeah. So outside of, of Harry Price, sort of professional ghost hunters or parapsychologists in the UK were were not household names, mm-hmm. unlike this day and age. So probably the most famous person who was writing about the paranormal, but even so was still on the fringes of, of what was sort of classed as the new age movement in those days, would have been people like Colin Wilson, was be a prime example who's probably most famous work once again did another fabulous book on the world of poltergeists um but he studied the uh, black monk of pontifract case mm-hmm. intimately and went to the house and interviewed the families and and people like tony cornell and alan gold so yeah. really other than outside of the spr there was no avenue there was no magazines people didn't know anything and probably for a lot of people their only sort of connection with the world of the paranormal was a local psychic or a, a local woman in their community that would give tea leaf readings or crystal ball meetings or their perhaps even their local spiritual church. So for a lot of people, when strange things were happening, their first port of call was the police and then it would be the media. Yeah, which makes sense. I mean, it, it, without that information, I mean, back at that point, if you had this stuff starting to happen to you, and I mean, with, with the Enfield case, it was so extreme and it became extreme so quickly. The, mm. the activity escalated so fast, uh, you know, with, within that house, I can't imagine what a family like the Hodgson's were thinking at that point, especially a single mom with a whole pile of kids, you know, they weren't in a great space to begin with. Um, the, just complete chaos, uh, uh, you know, with, within that, within that family itself, what, what was your impression of Guy's view on the case as you spoke to him? Well, he was absolutely adamant that he was very fortunate to have found himself in the right time because him and Morris Groves 
both sort of ended up being involved in this case by by pure accident. Yeah. Um, it's quite funny that Guy Guy actually ended up. He was apparently going to go on holiday to Romania for some reason, mm. um, and he went to catch a bus. <laughs> to go to the Romanian embassy to get a visa. Cause obviously in those days, Romania was in the Eastern Bloc. So you had to, uh, you had to be sort of vetted by the governments of both the UK and Romania to allow yourself passage into the country. And so uh, his bus didn't turn up and he was really annoyed. And so he, he remembered that there was a, a meeting at the SPR that evening. So he decided to go, go to that instead. Um, and ended up sitting in front of Maurice Groves when he came to the SPR to ask for help on the case. Wow. That's it. That's so interesting to me because this particular case and beginning with, with Maurice, there was so many things as I was you know, digging through this, this stuff. And I mean, I, like you, I've, I've been, a been fascinated with this case for mm. a really, really long time. There were so many things that lined up for this case yeah. to actually happen. And when I really started to notice it was when I was, I was doing a deep dive on Maurice and how, when it, his daughter, Janet passed away very mm. unexpectedly motorcycle accident. And then, and I mean, he was another one of those people, like I wrote about in the gift of instinct where he dropped his, everything that he had, his career, you know, he was, a, you know, the founder of, of some pretty cool <laughs> inventions yes. and whatever, and dropped all of it in order to turn his attention to parapsychology and, and the paranormal, because he believed that he was seeing these bits and pieces and these signs from his daughter. And of course, Janet is also the name of the, the young girl who gets attacked basically by this, this entity in at the Enfield. And I just, I, to me, it was so interesting to see how, again, this stuff had to happen. Like there was a series of events that had to go on in order for the right people to be at the right place at the right time. And like you just described another one. Yeah. I think the whole situation with Morris, because it's within a month of his daughter dying that he ends up yeah. coming to the Hodgson's age. Did you stumble across the, the incident with the birthday card? I, you know, I don't think I did. So go ahead and tell us. Okay, so obviously Morris's daughter tragically died in a in a motorcycle accident in Cardiff. The she was the passenger, pillion passenger on the back of a motorbike, and they had an accident. The driver, the the motorcyclist driver was was killed instantly. Janet was severely injured, and uh, passed away the day after in hospital, which was her brother's birthday. On the morning of her brother's birthday, he received a birthday card from Janet when he opened it, shocked them. It was a, a picture of a lady stood on, uh, on the front of the card with her head completely swathed in bandages. And it says, I was going to send you a bottle of toilet water for your birthday. And then when you opened the card up, it said, but the lid fell on my head and there's not much left of it. Oh, and he wow. got that the day wow. she died. Um, and they just, began to think that there was a whole series of coincidences because when Janet passed away, she was in her hospital bed. Her head was completely swathed in bandages because she'd suffered a, a traumatic head injury. So these little things began to sort of 
occur. So it was this action, I think, that kind of propelled Morris towards this case. Some people may say it was destiny because for him to end up with one of the most compelling poltergeist cases of the 20th century in the UK within four weeks of this horrendous incident afflicting him and his family is quite remarkable. And as you said, Morgan, the fact that his daughter and the Hodgson's daughter, who was the main focus for, for the majority of the incidents there, were both called Janet, I think just gives this a strange parallel that it would have been very hard for him not to have found something about this case that made him want to try and help the family. Absolutely. And, you know, it's so what I found so cool about this, this whole scenario is that Maurice was a champion for Janet way past the, you know, the closing of, of the Enfield case. I mean, he went to bat for her on television shows and interviews and what, you know, had, I don't think you could have put anybody else in that position that would have stood for her in the way Maurice stood for her. And to me, it's like, all of these things seemingly had to happen in order to put him at the right place at the right time. And, you know, you kind of wonder if his, you know, if his daughter had something to do with that, had she not been kind of dropping these, these signs here and there and this, the paranormal activity that was happening for him, you know, would, would he have pursued it like this? Probably not almost guaranteed not. Mm -hmm. I think it was very cathartic for him, but, Everybody that met Morris said he was a, a a deeply caring man, a very thoughtful man, and the kind of person who would always put others before himself. And he spent his entire life doing that. And obviously, as you referred to earlier, this was a chap that was was a, a renowned inventor. He had patents all over the world. He invented one of the first automatic newspaper dispensing machines and sold the rights to it. So. We're not talking about somebody who was just twiddling about with things in his garage. This was a gentleman who was uh, a deep thinker and yet extremely practical as well. So we have a man who has a footing in the worlds of science and invention and the possibilities, coupled with Guy Lyon Playfair, who had spent 15, 20 years traveling the world, spending time investigating poltergeists and psychic phenomenon, primarily in South America and Brazil, especially. Yeah, absolutely. To me, this, this is one of the most interesting cases that, that has stood the test of time for so long. Um, you know, even of course being featured in, as one of the new Conjuring films in the Conjuring 2. Arg. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, Arg. And the, and the SPR, the Society of Psychical Research, uh, I mean, they were drastically pushed out of that film like drastically pushed out i mean they they were barely made a cameo in it um which is which was so frustrating i mean i can't even imagine paul what guy would have thought had he watched that movie well i, I can tell you exactly what he thought he said I believe I, it. he said i'm not bothered that they're not using any of my book because if they do i'll sue them ah, fair enough there you go <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. We, we should, when we when it comes to Enfield, you have to deal with the elephant in the room, which is the Warrens. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren spent four hours over three days at the house. Yeah. That's it. They they didn't spend a night there, and they came at the tail end of the case as well when things there wasn't much happening. Uh, Guy always says he met 
Mr. Warren wants. And the only thing he took away from the conversation was that Mr. Warren said to him, I can make you very rich with this case. And he said, mm -hmm. after that, I didn't want to speak to him again. Wow. Yeah. Cause that's not what guy was at all about. No, 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 not at all. And, and this, this is a man who was uh, a very urbane man, a man of, uh, a man of culture, a man that had traveled the world, a professional writer. He came from a very, uh, upper middle class background. He was a, another gentleman and, and probably more a gentleman of letters than conversation. So these were not the kinds of conversations that he was very comfortable or, or wanted to indulge any time in really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you, you can't, you can't blame him. I mean, that, that statement says a lot. I mean, it mm. said not only a lot about the Warrens and, and what was going on, you know, with them and why they were there, but um, it just also just, you know, his response speaks volumes about, about guy as well, you know, because he, he could have, turned around and you know made a ton of money off of it or you know published you know movie rights or or whatever and it's it it just goes to show that you know so many of the people that are in this for the right reasons are really in it for the right reasons yeah. and guy was one of them yeah very much so. i mean it's not just the second conjuring film that's that's taken liberties with this we had a, a british three-part series done which was around 2014 2015 i remember it originally called the Enfield Poltergeist. And the majority of that is is absolute nonsense. I watched the first episode and after the bit where Guy gets pinned to the wall by an unseen presence, I just turned that turned it off and thought, well, I'm not going to watch this. I'll just read the book again. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think the Warrens have become such a public focal point with this? Do you, do you think it was it was James Wan's film? Like, is, is that what it was? Or like, what happened? Um, well, I don't know. You could say the same about Amityville, really, couldn't you? Yeah. 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 Um, and I don't know. Um, with, well, without wishing to cast aspersions, yeah, they were right. they were very they were they were very good at uh, self-publicizing their involvement in in cases, um, and the history of their investigations is there for all to see with a balanced and skeptical mind. Yeah. So <laughs> interesting, but this kind of case, uh, we see that approach and then the other approach, which, which was guys. And, and I'm wondering why, um, Hollywood hasn't picked up on it because honestly, I find the real story, the, the real investigation far more interesting than, uh, something that is, uh, not, not, not the truth, you know, like. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't understand. Yeah, I can't wrap my brain around why it is that uh, they want to tell the the fantastical story rather than the real one. Yeah. I mean, Guy was saying when he was talking to the Sky producers about it, when, he, when they showed him what they'd done and he said, well, why have you not used most of my book? They said to him, well, if we, if we filmed what you'd written, nobody would believe it. And he yeah. was like, well, you've got me pinned against the wall by a ghost that didn't yeah. happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're not, you know, we're not talking about transdimensional portals opening up in this house. We're, we're talking about a quite prolific haunting and poltergeist activity. So for anybody with any real interest in the worlds of the paranormal, it's, it's a case that is quite unique in the fact it had such a long shelf life in regards to how long 
the the incidents were going on but the rest of the you know the, the rest of the cases you have the usual poltergeist things things moving about strange voices shadowy figures supports people being moved about so it's for anybody that's got a real knowledge or interest in in the world of the poltergeist these are not unusual things mm -hmm. it's funny how directors and things like that seem to to do this though like <laughs> we when we interviewed um andrea perrin from the first conjuring yes. uh case it, it you know she she said the same thing she had said that you know they didn't they didn't want to go there with the original material and the original material like i mean you read it it's it's far worse it's than terrifying <laughs> totally yes. terrifying and you know and and the director at that point had a parent allegedly said to her you know uh, well you know oh, we can't do this we can't do this this is this is too frightening and so it's interesting that you know it, you wonder whether it's it's the fact that oh you know we want to create the scripted story because we think it's going to sell better or you know if there's something a little bit deeper with some of these people that are going oh we like we don't know how to we don't know how to face this like we it's, it's challenging their own reality in some way mm. well i always find it on as also a lover of, of horror films mm -hmm. you know i'll always i'll always put the exorcist and the entity up as Absolutely. two of the most yeah. terrifying films ever totally. the entity especially is mm -hmm. is probably one of these films that is more closely aligned with what actually happened mm -hmm. obviously there are silly bits towards the end sure and yet within 30 years They've kind of gone, oh, well, we can't show you what actually happened because it's scary. But you're making a horror film. Yeah. I, 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 what, what part of that am I missing? I, it, it confuses the hell out of me as well. Yeah, it's really, it, it's it's a weird paradox because you'd think that it, that people, you know, especially if they're filming something that's supposed to be, you know, R-rated and horror, that they're going for something scary. But I almost wonder if there's a bit of a... A, a bit of a paradigm with them, almost like the uncanny valley, where it's like, okay, this is this is something we can't look at, we can't deal with because it's 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 too real, and it's almost like they've made a dividing line between something that is you know super scary but created, and somehow that is more acceptable in the public mind than something that is you know, they can say, no, this actually happened, this is real. I, I don't know. Maybe they think that there's a line there that they can't cross. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Yeah, and especially when you look at the the modern paranormal television. I mean, people are being told that they've got ferocious demons running around their houses <laughs> all over the world. Yeah. So, you know, attacking their families and, and trying to possess their, yeah. them and their families and their children. So I'm not really sure how that being beamed into our homes is is less frightening than going somewhere where you have to be of a certain age to to view it mm -hmm. it it's one of the it's, it's one of those nonsensical arguments to it that you just don't understand where they're coming from so what's what's your real take on enfield um how much of it really happened we, I, we, we all know that uh some of it may or may not have happened and had been uh put on by the girls but mm -hmm. what's your opinion on 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 it what happened I, I would say at least 95 percent of it is mm -hmm. real yeah and it's interesting i feel that way too and it's interesting mm. when there is something like for example harry price throwing rocks at borley rectory <laughs> and uh and uh you know the girls may be faking something uh like tossing yeah. a kitchen kitchen stuff around or whatever at enfield mm -hmm. and 
the skeptics will glom onto that and say, yes. because of these things that we know were faked, all the rest of it is nonsense. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like because of one tiny little piece of truth, which was mm -hmm. that they faked something, the whole, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. And I think all of these stories sort of don't get told at the end of things. Absolutely. I think it, it's very important as well to, to understand that on two of the occasions that the girls tried to fake something, they were caught both times because mm -hmm. they were rubbish at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're so, kids. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as you say there, Mark, these are the things that really frustrate me when we deal about this because without wishing to sort of say, oh, well, I, I, I believe anything, I'm, I'm gullible. Mm -hmm. When you look at the the witnesses, because if it was just Morris and Guy and, you, and the family, then perhaps you would think, well, perhaps they're creating this culture of excitement and, and they begin to misinterpret things, which I find very hard when we're talking about the two prime investigators on this case with their background and, and knowledge in a variety of fields. But there are, there are incidents that, as you say there, that people just don't talk about. They talk about these bits with the girls being rubbish at faking stuff. Yeah. But nobody talks about um, the police officer, Caroline Heaps. Seeing the who, chair, yeah. Yeah, who wrote a, a signed statement verifying that her and her colleague, with other witnesses, including the neighbours, all were stood in a room with the children and saw a chair in the kitchen slide across the floor. Mm -hmm. well, well, how did that happen? Are we supposed to believe that the children had managed to create some kind of pulley system that was invisible to the eye? and managed to fall uh, a, a number of adults at two in the morning on the off chance that someone would think that there was a ghost. We, we don't talk about these parts, of, well, we certainly do, but as you say there, these are the things that often get glossed over and it's as frustrating when, when people focus on these things. It, it's, it's like that aspect that sometimes occurs in ufology where Travis Walton is a prime example that mm -hmm. he failed one lie detector test, but he passed six. So right. everybody focuses on the one he failed. Whereas if you put the other six through as proof that what happened to him is real, they'll say, well, they're not valid. Well, it, you can't have it both ways. You can't say a failed one proves he's lying and the six that he passed don't mm -hmm. count because it's not scientifically valid. Well, it's, it can't be both things at once, surely. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, that's, that's, it's, that's such a good point to, to bring up. And I, I think back to just basic common sense being that age as a kid, you know, mm. what's going through your head, <laughs> you know, if you were going to try to pull something over your, over your parents and you're trying to pull the wool over their eyes. I mean, how many people, how many people could get away, let alone come up with something that extravagant and that extreme, for mm. that long in a household full of other people. You know, this was a relatively big family. There was quite a few kids. And then of course, you know, uh, Peggy, the mom. Yep. And it, it's like, just, just that in and of itself. And, and to think that none of the other kids would have, you know, ratted her out or, I mean, I don't think anybody can look back at themselves at that age and think, yep, I could have pulled that off. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it just it's it, it's almost it, it's almost it's laughable. I mean, it's really really laughable. 
It is, but as as Mike, you were referring to there about this the, the the skeptical argument about the girls faking stuff. Once again, at the beginning of it, one of the other key incidents is when the neighbour Vic Nottingham goes round to check the house, and the family are in his house with his wife. He's hearing bangings on the wall, things moving about, creaking upstairs. He's the only person in the house, mm-hmm. so. How's that happening then? But it, once again, it's one of these things. I mean, it's like the fireplace that gets ripped out the wall. Apparently, yeah. Janet did it with a crowbar. What, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. I, th- I think then we're beginning to stretch. In you know, we're stretching things to the to the believability. But I mean, the incident starts where Peggy sees the chest of drawers slide into in front of the door, mm-hmm. and the kids are in bed. Yeah, right. I mean, I can't move my chest of drawers. <laughs> just saying, like, you know, like even just something like that, uh, you've got these people that are, you know, they're not overly excitable people. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, you're not dealing with a group of people that are, you know, suffering from delusions or or anything like that. And it, I think one of the most, the, one of the things that stands out to me about the case the most was, of course, the the audio recordings that they were picking up mm-hmm. when yes. they were speaking to, with with this entity, and the the recordings are so incredibly clear. They're so phenomenal, and it seemed as you're listening to them. For those who have not heard these, um, which they are available on on YouTube, the originals are are out there. Um, what fascinated me with these was that the what started off as grunting and growling and snarling and uh, deep uh, guttural animal noises Mm. very very slowly became language and you know if you were gonna if if you were gonna fake something like this that's that's a very well thought out progression and i mean the way the way it came off um and even the 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 dialogue that was being had uh (laughs) between you know maurice and and the entity that it called itself bill um it going back and forth the the manipulation there was gaslighting in there there was um (laughs) it you know there was there was all these different different nuances of of language and and uh and and conversation that i i don't i have a hard time believing that that was all just set up you know it was it was very very unique what's your take on that and I find it one of the, the funniest parts of the case, actually, because whatever was going on, it, was, it it's really rude as well. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a lot of swearing. Yes. There's a lot of obsession with sex. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it, it keeps talking about boobs and willies. <laughs> and It's the first time we've said willies on this show, so I want to <laughs> make sure that we, we note that. <laughs> this is a momentous time. <laughs> I always like I always like to set a trend, and um, there are just there's so many weird things about all that. It, a lot of it is as as with anything. As when we talk about things in the paranormal, often a lot of communication is absolute gobbledygook, and this is what seems to be going on in these aspects of, of some of the conversations um, with Bill, because he's not the only one as well which is one of the other aspects of this case mm. there were several voices that sure. actually came through three of the children yeah. and even peggy on one one particular occasion so once again people focus on the aspect of it being janet as the as the fulcrum of what was going on but it affected margaret and i think it was billy the other boy um because the, the, there were four of the children one of them was at boarding school throughout most of the haunting and um, 
but uh, was it Billy or Johnny? One of them. He basically slept. Yeah, he slept through most of it. He used to wrap himself up in his dressing gown like he was wearing a smock and cover his head and everything. And he would sleep through all this stuff going off and bangs and crashes and furniture flying about and people yeah, screaming. And he'd be well, asleep in bed. Yeah. yeah. Like there's, there's stress for you though. You know, like I'm just going to oh. shut, I'm going to shut down, shut this out. It's not yeah. happening. Like, I mean, there's, I mean, that alone tells you that, you know, I mean, there was, there was something massively stress, a big stressor that was going on with, with, with the family. Cause I mean, you know, if, if kids are excited and they're, you know, going to be running around faking this stuff, they're not going to be hiding their heads under, you know, under a, a, a bed sheet and a, a blanket and right. whatever else and, and trying to sleep through that. Like, that's just, that's not a normal reaction, especially for a kid that age. Yeah. And Absolutely. also, the, and, oh, also on, sorry, Mike, sorry. Also the detail that Bill went into about yes. how he'd passed away just before I died, I went blind and then I had a hemorrhage and I fell asleep yeah. and I died in the chair in the corner downstairs. Like, um, yeah. okay, what child is going to come up with that? It, yeah. She's, she's either a genius or she, she's, uh, she's read some medical books or something like that. It doesn't sound like something that a child would ever say. And, yeah. and apart from the foul language, there is a lot of different aspects to that kind of thing, uh, when, these entities are speaking in these tapes. It's just like, what in the heck? This can't be a child. It can't be. Uh, yeah. And I think it's one of these things about that part of the whole investigation as well is that people say, well, anybody could put a voice on. I mean, I, I've listened to the, to the audio quite a lot, so I'm quite proud of my impression of Bill. So uh, not, not that that shows that I've listened to it too much, but yeah. even I can't do it for more than five or 10 minutes without thinking, ooh, and Janet would be doing it for two to three hours a night. Yeah, yeah. it's a really gravelly, uh, masculine-sounding voice. And for a, a young child's vocal cords to do that, to, to have yeah. that depth, um, it would kill her. She'd be hacking up a lung. Absolutely. And Maurice Groves offered a reward of £500 for anybody that could come and, and perform it for more than 15 minutes. Mm. Nobody came claim the money. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's too, too difficult on the voice. I mean, and if somebody was, you know, was faking that, I mean, there would be vocal cord damage by the time they were done. And if you were doing something Well, you wouldn't like be able to speak properly afterwards as no. well. It would have a, it would have a, an effect that would go on past the event happening. You would be speaking with a raspy voice for the rest of the week, at mm -hmm. least. Well, I yeah. remember um, during the filming uh, Lord of the Rings when uh, uh, Andy Circus, after he would, you know, put on Gollum for <laughs> X yes. amount of time. And he's, you know, he's forcing this voice. And I, I remember really clearly in one of, uh, you know, one of, it was either his interviews or Peter Jackson. And, you know, he was saying like, you know, once he was done shooting, he was done. Like there was, <laughs> there, he was done. I mean, you know, his voice could only go so far and, uh, you know, and that's, and that's a, that's an adult man that's, you know, putting on this, this raspy, this really raspy voice. But, and the other thing too, with, with those, particular tapes is that's not talked about is how you know they would have everybody sit in the room fill their mouth with water and put duct tape over their mouths and yep. of course then whoever didn't spit the water out at the end was you know likely throwing their voice or whatever and everybody spit that water out yeah absolutely and it was dyed blue as well yeah you couldn't fake that <laughs> yeah so Morris, yeah. Morris, because people were saying to him, oh, well, anybody could be doing this. Because once again, we have this skeptical argument that these 
prepubescent children are some of the best ventriloquists in the world, along with being some of the best illusionists. Right. right? Yeah. And, and extremely cunning. David so, Copperfield, look out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. David Blaine learned everything he knew from the Hodgson's, clearly. So it, it's one of those things that eventually you begin to, there is only so far explanations can stretch where you begin to think, well, if, if you're, if a, you know, if a, an 11, 12 year old girl with a mouth full of water that's taped up is making a funny voice and nobody can replicate it for the same length of time and she's spitting the blue water back out, then she, why is she sat in a council house in North London? She should be on television. She should be touring <laughs> yeah. the States because she's clearly the world's greatest ventriloquist. Yeah, it's it, it, it once you dig into this case, it, it just becomes more and more baffling as to as to where where the idea of, of the hoax came from. And, and I think the only the only thing that I can reasonably come up with in regards to this is that this case was one of those things that challenged people in a way that push them to to an edge and a limit of their understanding and what they were prepared to address within themselves mm. and that this became something where the, the those people that couldn't that couldn't handle that or couldn't deal with it it was just simply easier to say this didn't happen she faked it that's it i i like i can't hear any more about mm. this and i don't know where where do you think that that controversy came from am i onto something with that <laughs> I think it's one of those things. I think often when you deal with cases like this, as we were referring to earlier about how frightening certain cases are, as you mentioned about the Peron situation, I think for some people, the, the very concept that your house could be invaded by an invisible presence that you cannot control is beyond the realms of comprehension for people. And they just mm. don't want it to be real yeah. because if it, if even one percent of what happened at Enfield is real, then that is a is a problem for a lot of people because then it begins to move people's perceptions about the world around us. And I think as as it comes to the poltergeist phenomenon, I'm not one of those people that thinks one size fits all. I think different cases have different aspects to it. I mean, Enfield is one of those where there are so many things going on that sometimes as as you've referred to things get glossed over there are things like that some of the furniture in the house it was mr hodgson bought it off somebody who had murdered his daughter Ooh. in a house yeah and he had ended up committing suicide and these are the little things that the, this all comes into the house prior to everything starting another weird one is that they ended up being gifted a budgerigard a month before everything started that had come from the house of an old woman that had passed away that's interesting yeah it's it what, what fascinates me about everything that you're saying is that it, it kind of comes back to, to something that i've studied for a lot of years and really focused my attention on which is people's people's state of mind what they surround themselves with um, the, 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 not only, I hate to use the word energy because it's such a, a blanket woo-woo term sometimes, but the, the, what they surround themselves with their state of being in the world, um, and their, their state of mind and, and so on and so forth. And 
it's it's interesting because whenever you get a case like this where there's something that is paranormally violent that's going on or there's it it typically is very reflective of stuff that's already going on in the house like whether it be internal trauma or you know whatever was like i mean janet for example was you know she was reported being very bullied she didn't have a lot of friends Mm -hmm. like you you had already this this emotional upset that was going on and what i found over the years as these cases that i've investigated and i think this is one of the reasons why anfield to me is is so prominent is that it was it was such a direct reflection of of so much of what was what was being the the energy that wasn't necessarily being dealt with like with within each person and i always find that it's this really fascinating mirror and this activity is a very fascinating mirror and i found this with the parent case as well where you know they were they were talking about how you know when the, when the warrens came in you know ed and uh, her and roger nearly ended up in a in a fist fight in the house um there was you know dissension a little bit of dissension between her mom and her dad there was uh, you know some religious issues going on there was like there was a lot of stuff that was going on it was just sort of this this undercurrent of of this, this underbelly that was that was there, and the the one incident that that Andrea talked about that I found was 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 so telling of this was that Ed Ed and Roger Ed Warren and, and Roger Perrin got in a, a in a fight to the point where it was like it was getting physical, and within seconds of that fight breaking out, the entity that was in the house then turned around and attacked um, Andrea's mom. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, boom, the, you know, direct reflection. And it was so immediate um, that it was, it was, it was just mirroring what was going on in the house. And and for me, Enfield, that's why this case is is so fascinating to me is because everything that you're, you know, you're just saying, it's like, you know, you've got this, this undercurrent of, of content and emotional energy that you've got sort of brewing. And then it just gets expressed in this, you know, in this way. And with, with this intelligence that seems to be, that seems to be kind of, you know, mirroring that, that emotional frequency basically as to, as to what's going on. So that's really interesting. Absolutely. And you throw into the mix as well, that obviously this was a displaced family unit because Mr. Hodgson had walked out in the family Mm -hmm. and run off with another woman who he would come round to the house with, which I've, you know, it's one of those situations where you've got emotional stress, financial stress. You've got the stresses of all the children because one of the other aspects is that three of the children had uh, either a speech defect or learning difficulties as well. So you have a whole smorgasbord of, of emotional trauma that's just bubbling under the surface all the time. So is that something that once again has allowed whatever this, is it a conduit? Is the frustration and fear feeding whatever it is? Because I know we've spoken about this previously, Morgan, do these situations increase the fear because they need the fear to have the energy to continue to perform what comes first does the does the emotion create whatever this is or is it something there that creates the motion which is basically like a domino effect it's it's very chicken and egg i suspect well i think there's there's two factions to it because you've got You've got the element of of psychokinesis, which we know is is driven by, um, uh, driven by high levels of emotion, oftentimes negative emotion. Um, so you, I think you've you've got that aspect of it, where where you know that that's you know some of this stuff is 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 driven that way. But I think I, I think the one thing that that is is nearly certain is that 
you know, regardless of whether this this entity was, you know, like a, a thought form that was born from the the anguish that was going on in the home, or whether it was attracted in, or or what was going on, I mm. think I think that emotional discord at least put them almost on the radio frequency of at least of, of, of picking something like this up. Like I know, um, you know, in in other cases and and whatnot that I've dealt with over the years, so one thing I've I've really noticed is that you know you can have a like a, a family like this that can experience this in, insane amount of of, uh, you know, haunting and dysfunction and, you know, terror and, and whatever, and they move out. And then you get another family that's existing in a very different emotional yeah. state that moves in. And all of a sudden there's nothing there. And they go, oh, well, the last one was a hoax because we moved in and there's nothing. <laughs> Amityville. Like, no, no, Amityville is a great example of that. Great example of that. So it's like, no, 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 hold on. It doesn't mean that this, you know, this family didn't have this experience. What it means is, is that these people have come in with the, with a different energy that are receiving something different because they're in an emo different emotional state um, and a different emotional place, and they're just not on the radar of what's going on. And I think I think Enfield is such a it's such a poignant example of of that, especially when you look at um, you know Janet's progression after the haunting. I mean, her her life didn't get a whole lot better uh, after that, and um, you know even her story just continued to be. To, to be tragic like she lost a, a child later on and and there was there was a lot of things that went on that you know just really continued to 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 make her life really hard yeah and the other aspect of all this is that they've continually turned down large sums of money to talk about it so you would then begin to think well what's the point of pretending then if you're not going to benefit from it financially mm -hmm. because exactly. as we were saying when i spoke with evelyn hollow who your listeners may be aware of through her work on the wonderful Battersea Poltergeist podcast mm -hmm. that was done on the BBC last year, which was amazing. Um, and, and Evelyn is someone I've got to know over the last sort of couple of years, and she's a phenomenal woman in regards to her thoughts in the worlds of, of parapsychology and, and her work in, in regards to hauntings. She always points out that often here in the UK, we have a real cultural problem with cases like this because a lot of them tend to happen to low income and working class yeah. families and therefore they must be lying because they need to get out or they want a better house or they want to be rich because their their personal circumstances are stunting their life whereas this is a prime example of a family that were involved in something that ruined all their lives that tarnished them both personally and outside of the house in regards to the the way that they were treated at school their friends that they fell out with the, the dysfunctional family unit to then as adults always have this thing following them along to the, to the point that both Peggy and Margaret, as far as I'm aware, have done two interviews in the last 15 years about this. Mm -hmm. That to me does not smack of people trying to make a fast book. No, no, it, it sure doesn't. And, and, yeah, I mean, and you 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 put it perfectly. I mean, just the the amount of attention that they've they've sought has been basically zero. I remember uh, hearing uh, through some channel that um, when the Conjuring Two announcement was made, uh, like Janet was actually really upset uh, that she didn't want this movie to be made at all, uh, yes. and she just said like, you know, I'm out. Like, I'm not helping with this. Don't call me. Don't just leave me alone. And yeah. uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's trauma response, you know, like that's not something that, that's not something that people do when they're, you know, looking for, 
you know, glory and fame. And <laughs> yes, there is, there is, uh, there is one interview they did when the Conjuring Two came out, and it both of them look extremely strained, as if they wish the ground would swallow them up. Um, and it's just basically yes, mm. they neither of them look very happy about having to sort of deal with this situation. I think, and it's it is what it is because the thing about this is that as as we've referred to a lot of the people who witnessed things and saw things were not in the family they were relatives i mean mm. graham morris who was the newspaper photographer from the daily mirror he was really annoyed about because there was a um, a channel 4 documentary called interview with a poltergeist that came out about 15 years ago which is fairly good and he was really annoyed that his segment was edited to make it look as though he didn't believe them. He is 100% convinced that there was something really strange that he can't mm -hmm. explain going on there. Yeah. Yeah. And how frustrating for him. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know? I heard him a couple of years ago and he was very candid about it. And he said, I completely believe them. 100%. He said, because he got hit in the face with a piece of Lego. So, <laughs> you know, he took pictures of cushions flying across the bedroom, of the curtains sort of billowing out. I mean, these were things, you know, people saw things from outside of the house. Um, the, the famous incident with the lollipop lady who saw Janet levitating around the bedroom, floating horizontally. People hard seem to miss talking that about age that. Of, hard for the kid of that age to uh, <laughs> fake that one. <laughs> oh, no, well, I was, this I was is the thing when... around like that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Of course you are, Mike. Of course um, you are. I am right now. You just can't even... see it because this is audio. <laughs> you sound very relaxed, so I yeah. can believe that, Mike. Um, um, I mean, and they tried to replicate that by bouncing on the bed, and they couldn't get above the windowsill. Mm. Yeah. I mean, this is a lollipop lady. She had nothing to do with it. Once again, she spoke to Guy Lyon Playfair and the Daily Mirror 40 years ago. She's never spoken to anybody else about it since. But then the, the pictures baker. that you see are them bouncing on the bed. Yeah, I mean, the jumping picture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it could be anything. However, everybody focuses on that one because, once again, mm -hmm. that falls into the camp of, well, it's, it's nonsense. Whereas yeah. the pictures of the curtains floating across and holding themselves up or trying to tie themselves around Janet's neck, they never get published. Right. So it, it's one of those, it's all or nothing for me, Mike. You either publish all the photos or you mm. don't push any, punish any, publish any of them. You can't, once again, if you want us to deal with this case in a rigorous, balanced manner, we have to look at all of the evidence. And that works for both sides, both as skeptics and believers. You can't omit things that weaken your point. Right. You have to just yeah. lay all out there and let people make their own mind up whether you want people to dismiss it or believe it. You have to give them the facts. Well, maybe Absolutely. maybe someone should do that. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Hmm. Mike, Mike, I sense a project. <laughs> uh, Paul, this has been amazing. Thank you so, so much. Before we go, where can people listen to your incredible podcast? Because it is amazing i think it's one of the gold standards in in paranormal podcasting so guys tune in <laughs> so paul let let them know where where can they find you thank you very much and it's been a pleasure to to join you both i've thoroughly enjoyed it myself um so mysteries and monsters can be found on all podcast platforms and we're across all social media platforms as well under the mystery and monsters moniker 
and we will be posting links to that so that everybody can get their get their pause on that and get subscribing and listening because it is it is phenomenal and I'd say you are you are like one of the shows that I I'm always so glad when you call <laughs> because <laughs> I, I I just love doing your show and I just love I, I just love the conversations that we get into they're so good your questions are always amazing and thoughtful and and just and and powerful I feel always so good when I get off the get off the phone with you so thank you so much and we will talk to you again very soon now no, before I've you had go a real pleasure before you yes. go I, I'm going back to the UK again probably very soon uh, well I guess next year um, so I'm definitely going to have to look you up but one of the things that one question I had was if there is a case that you wish had more attention um, in uh, another UK case which one would, would that be yeah, I know this um, is that's kind of a loaded question, and you're not prepared for it, but maybe you are. Uh, I am actually. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, because uh, it's a case that I've actually done some research on, and actually been to the site of it, and um, and as I desperately try to finally pull my book together, uh -huh. um, I'm focusing on some poltergeist cases that I believe deserve the recognition of. We've been speaking about Enfield and Paulie Rectory and others, and I think there are several. And the one that will always jump out to me is the Runcorn poltergeist that happened in the 1950s here cool. in the UK. That's there a good you go. One. And that, uh, so we're definitely looking forward to your book then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that, this is one of those things, Mike, that this case was so famous. Time Life magazine came to the mm -hmm. UK. Yeah interviewed the family, took pictures in the house, sure. stayed in there. It was on the BBC. People were there. That went on for four or five months. It was a massive story. I'd never heard of it until five years ago when I rediscovered it in a book that I'd owned for several years. And I wow. thought, why do I not know about this? And then a couple of years, not three years ago, we went out there for a couple of days and I, me and my partner went to the actual house. It's still there. It still exists. Um, we went to the local library, Runcorn Library. All the newspaper archives are still there. It was front page news in the paper for three, four months. So it, it's one of those things, as we've mentioned earlier. Well, Why do some of these cases hit the headlines and others yeah. just vanish? Yeah. Well, we'll have to have you back to talk about that one for sure. <laughs> yep. There okay. we go. That's the next one. <laughs> You're <laughs> booked you. already. <laughs> Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you again for having me. It's been a, been a real honor. Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called the Swiss Cheese Process. This is the perfect process for when you want to alleviate the feeling of being overwhelmed when you have many things you need to get done. This is a process specifically regarding action. First, take a large sheet of paper and write each thing you feel you have to do at the moment. Maybe you're running a business and you feel you've got many tasks to complete regarding your business. For example, you might write, phone the marketing people, update my website, order new business cards, when you have many actions you feel you need to do, some may take days or weeks, others might be little 10-minute jobs. So when you get to doing the actions, 
take the smaller tasks on first. They might be the ones you want to focus on because they feel a little bit less overwhelming. Each action you feel you have to take is written on the paper and a circle is drawn around it. Then, once all the actions are laid out in front of you, choose the one that feels the simplest. Choose the one that feels the most fun and the most inspired and do that first. Once you complete it, cross out the circle. Then, later, you can pick the next easiest. Pick again the most fun-seeming action and do that. Cross it off your paper. The idea is that the process frees up your emotional resistance around the subject and allows some new momentum to get going. You may find you do several of these little actions in a day, and then you might even become inspired to do a few more. The energy frees up around more of them, which means some of the things that you write out might actually start shifting all on their own. Before long, you may notice the momentum changing and the universe acting on your behalf as you move forward. You need nothing to be happy, but you need something to be sad. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at DarkPatine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now.